This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. I'm Micah Bays. I'm John Sextro. This week on the podcast, we're going to be talking about episode... No, not episode. I did that again, Micah. We're going to be talking about chapter five. This is uh, the sixth episode of our conversations. Since we started with the introduction, the chapters and the episodes don't exactly match up. But a real quick uh, recap of the chapter uh, chapter five, and then we'll we'll dive into dive deeper into some of the topics. Uh, the title of this chapter is The Ultimate Boon. It covers time span from 1995 to 2010 in the history of Bridgewater and Ray Dalio. He talks a lot about um, setting up a trust for his family so that they can, uh, they can benefit from his wealth over time, figuring out how to have that long-term wealth where it can really weather the storm of economies and how he goes about that. Uh, he he goes through this this uh, decision as to whether or not to be try and grow Bridgewater into a huge company or keep it a small boutique, and uh, that he he's weighing the pros and cons there. Really starts to get into principles more, and we'll come back and and talk a lot more about the principles and then his discovery of psychometric testing, and we'll talk what about all that is and what that means about creating baseball cards to sort of uh, encapsulate individuals in their traits, just like you would see in baseball cards. Did you have baseball cards when you were a kid, Micah? I did. I was actually more of a football card guy, but I did have same idea. Yeah. So we'll come back and talk about that. Uh, the, in the book, they go on to talk about being on the cutting edge and trying to remain solid in, in their, uh, in their estimates and, and predictions. And then dealing with a potential economic crisis in 2008, helping out the policymakers, making great returns, and then sort of wrapping up um, with uh, how Bridgewater would go on to succeed in a world where Ray has has retired or moved on in his life. And so that's a, a real quick, high-level synopsis of the chapter, I think. Micah, some of the things we wanted to go a little bit deeper on for all of our listeners, some of the really interesting stuff was was more about the principles. So um, what did you see? What did you experience or what did you learn as you were reading more about how those principles were coming about? Yeah, I, you know, I think one interesting thing for me was kind of how late in the game uh, principles came around uh, for Ray. Uh, he talked about, you know, he's talked earlier about how he would write down whatever, you know, his thinking was as to, you know, investment strategies and um, keeping a record of those. So then he could revisit them and then reapply them and then input them into algorithms. But as far as just his general principles about how to go about things, right. In general, whether in life or um, in business, those general principles he didn't really start formulating or putting down 
until later, um, you know, until, you know, this time period, you know, mid late nineties. Um, so I found that interesting. I thought maybe he would have done that earlier. I think he maybe started to see, uh, I, and just, you know, reading between the lines in the book, if you will, that, uh, he started to see at the, around the time when his close advisors came to him and said, you know, you, you, uh, some people don't understand your approach. Some people don't are afraid of you or, or whatever that was, you know, he, he talked about that intractable people problem that he was having, Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe that was where like the seed was planted and it just was maybe starting to write some things down, but not, not becoming a full speed in terms of creating principles until the mid nineties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It did seem just like a matter of circumstances that he realized, Hey, there's this need these things to be written down so people can be aware of them and discuss them. And so then they can also be debated. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because you see this in you see in companies all of the time that there are um, patterns to patterns to dealing with situations or there's just patterns to situations in general. What sort of things are going on inside of companies? Hiring, firing, People leaving the company, p- promoting people within the company, dealing with contra- uh, dealing with the conflict, dealing with disagreement, you know, just the, the the nuts and bolts, the blocking and tackling of running an organization. And the unique thing that I think they did in this case that Dalio does in this case is really start to write those down and say, I think that this is a good way to handle that situation as a principle, allowing people to stand on top of that, use that information or to debate it and say, no, it's, there's another better way to handle it. And it's like this. And then a lot, allow that idea and that principle to evolve. Mm-hmm. So uh, Micah, th- that's not unusual, I guess, that there are these situations, that there are these patterns, but that there are then these, these principles to deal with those how does that how does that appeal to you philosophically or does it or what are the philosophical implications of having principles to deal with these rote patterns so to speak right i mean i think on the one hand that you know, i start thinking about or questioning is this going to be too simplistic of a dealing with these things right to try and lump dealing with hirings or dealing with firings you know treating firing as another one of those as he puts it is that too, I'm going to say coarse grained, is it, you know, not take into account all of the different variables? And so you almost wonder, well, can you really come up with good principles that deal with all the variables that are involved in the firing of a person or, right? Because there's one, on the one hand, you might be, you know, how is this person going to receive it? So what's the good way to fire someone? Um, obviously, other questions are, when is it appropriate to fire someone? And so there's a concern about, for the success of the company. Um, and so then it seems like, well, what kind of company are you in, right? That might determine whether someone's worth being fired or not. Um, and so, right, those are just a few variables and we could, you know, figure out some more. Right. And so it just seems like, well, is this too difficult to really have good principles for, you know, these particular situations? Is that too simplistic of a way to think about it? But, you know, on the other hand, it's like, well, we do deal with life things as just another one of those quite often, right? So uh, just think about when you cross the street, 
right? What we tend to do is pick out the salient aspects of the situation. figure out how many leaves are on that tree. Um, hey, there's, you know, a house, you know, 300 feet down. Let me look at what color it is, right? All of those things you just kind of set aside. You, you're able to ignore. And what you look at is, is there a car coming, right? Um, if there is, how fast is it going? Um, and so just intuitively, we've learned how to deal with situations, as you might say, another one of those. You don't have to assess everything. We just pick out what's most important or the most important features and deal with those. Mike, if you peel that back for a moment, what you mentioned that was the actual principle there was to to look for cars, look both ways for our cars coming. No one tells you to assess how fast the cars are coming or how to take a step off of the curb and onto the street. So so the the basic principle sets you up to be in the right mindset, mm-hmm. right? To deal with the circumstance without being prescriptive to you about what are all of the surrounding things. So as a principle and as, a, as just sort of like a guiding, uh, a guiding philosophical thing to do, it's not prescriptive. Therefore, the things, while they are simplistically uh, phrased and are, are small, they can be they can sort of be very encompassing of a situation and flexible to a situation based on the realities of that situation while just keeping you focused like you said focused on the salient things those things that are just really the most important right yep and yeah that's one thing with my daughters and we go on uh walks and they ride their scooters and they like to you know go down the down the street away from us for a while and, you know, typically we have them be on the left side of the street so they can see oncoming traffic. But if they're going to start going up a hill, I don't want them on the left side because then the car that's coming toward them can't see them because of the hill. So I want them to cross over to the right side. And so, right, I'm trying to get the goal, of course, is how to scooter safely, right? Um, but then you've, they've got to learn what the important features of the situation are. It's not just whether the car having the car come towards you, but can the car see you? So sometimes you want to be on the right side. Um, so yeah, you're going to have some variability and um, hopefully your principles can handle that. How would you construct a principle, one principle? And I know I put, I'm putting you on the spot here, but how might you construct one principle for your daughters that would, would basically roll into uh, dealing with cars on the roadway? when they're, when they're scootering to scooter safely? Well, on the one hand, you want to improve your visibility of other cars, right? That's why typically why you go on the left side, because you can see the car coming at you. Um, but you also want to increase your visibility to cars. Uh, so I guess I, I don't want to say one principle, but it's, you know, to be safe requires a couple things, right? There's two things you want to, at least two things you want to do, maximize visibility of cars and maximize visibility of you to other cars that's perfect so that sort of rolls up and that leaves a lot of variability it doesn't say be on the left side or the right side Mm -hmm. it just it gives them that that uh set of guidelines or or buoys that are out there that say i need to think about 
Can a car see me? Can I see a car? Is it better for the other cars to see me or to me to see the other cars? Right. right. And and you're, I think you're saying the, the default position should be you be visible to the cars first. Right. But I also think it's, it speaks to the fact that um, you have to take into account who you're teaching this to. Right. Um, Cause if I just, just told my children, increase your visibility and increase visibility to others. They're like, what? Right. So I might give them a couple rough guidelines that are good in most circumstances, but not all circumstances. Right. Be on the left side, except when going up a hill, get on the right side, but there's other factors. But So, so that's dealing with, with young people, with children in your case, right. with adults uh, in our circumstances, hopefully we can maybe just be a little bit, less specific and and as as dalio does put those principles out there to help people think hey i should be visible i should be able to be seen i should be able to see okay that's a good principle to deal with safe scootering right so i think that's a great example of how we can we can create our own principles in life to help guide our path so john as we talked about you know in this section we see uh kind of the uh growth of his principles and um, the way in which he starts writing them down and presenting them to other people. Uh, So one interesting thing is, um, you know, by 2006, he had approximately 60 work principles. Uh, I believe he's got about 300 now. Um, So I think, you know, he's probably just continued to refine the things he's thinking and identifying them. Um, But we also see here, uh, as you started writing down these principles, um, you know, a lot of this is for the purpose of creating an idea meritocracy where the best ideas win. Uh, and one thing he's discovered is that he needed to increase transparency uh, in the company. Um, and he said, you know, without transparency, people could spin decisions any way they want. And now what he means by transparency I'm going to say at least at the organizational level um, is that people have access to almost any meeting that they want to have access to. Um, he pointed out initially, this was pretty easy when Bridgewater was smaller. They could just go in and just attend just about any meeting they wanted to. You could just show up. Yep. Wow. And uh, right. Imagine, right. If you, are, you know, whatever your current work environment is, not you, John, specifically, but our listeners, you know, whatever your work environment is, imagine, right, if your, you know, executives were having a meeting, you could just walk in and sit down, you know, without an invitation, um, just literally an open door policy for their, the meetings. Uh, that's roughly the scenario they had. But as the company got bigger, he realized that just wasn't practical. One, you know, you you have so many people, you have so many meetings going on, you can't attend all of them. And you have conflicts where if you're at one meeting, you can't be at another meeting. Yeah, that would really grind things to a halt, right? If everybody was just going to everybody else's yeah. meetings all the time, it'd be like, oh, we can only have one meeting per hour <laughs> for every hour of the day. That would, that, But I guess that's not, obviously, that's not uh, feasible or even logical to try and do. Right. And so he still wanted transparency. Um, and so the way to do that was do video recordings, right? Record each meeting. Um, or as he says, right, there are some very rare exceptions. Um, not everything is recorded. So he talked about a um, couple scenarios. One was 
Um, if it was a really personal matter, like maybe health issues or something mm-hmm. like that, or uh, if there was proprietary information that was going to be shared in the meeting that you really needed to make sure was secret uh, that didn't get out, then that would not be recorded. Yeah, I, I think it's easy to imagine that there are just some things that are going to go on within a company or any any group even. Take it outside of a company, right? Ex- extend it to like... Um, uh, a, a, a group uh, like your soccer club or your church or, you know, any sort of other group where there are going to be meetings that just need to happen with a certain amount of, of secrecy to them, either because, like you said, you're protecting somebody's personal, very personal details and very personal information, or because there are times when it's, it's important to the operation of the unit that things not be exposed at a certain point in time. But this is, I mean, really, this is a sort of a radical idea because this is not like anything I've really ever heard of or seen in any sort of a company before. I mean, I I can remember accidentally one time when I was a young person starting in my career, I wandered into a meeting that uh, I thought I was invited to that was with with some people that were maybe a level or two higher than me in the company. And they're like, what the hell are you doing in here? You know, they kind of scooted me <laughs> out of that meeting. And I was like, oh, I, okay, sorry. I showed up at the wrong place. <laughs> yeah. Um, it was what they were really going to talk about. Something that I shouldn't have known about. I don't know. Maybe it would have benefited me. And I think that's the, that's the idea here is that people can make better decisions and operate more effectively with more information rather than less. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and one of the things he said is, if you don't have transparency, people can spin the decisions that get made in those private meetings any way they want, right? They can say, oh, well, you know, the real reason they decided to do X was because, you know, it's going to benefit them or it's going to benefit their family as opposed to the company. Um, but if it's open, right, if it's recorded, people can be in there and see what the reasonings were that were given, you know, you're not going to get that spin. Um, Right. For one, right. Suppose someone does want to spin it. They could go to their coworker and say, Oh yeah. Did you hear about why they made that decision? Well, now the coworker can go, eh, I'm not so sure. Let me go look at the recording. Um, there's another side to that too, where you might find in, in organizations where if, if a, if a group of leaders aren't all in, in a, a agreement, real agreement on a path forward, some people might passively agree without being in true agreement, knowing full well that their intentions are not going to be to carry out the true letter of what has been agreed to. You know, we're going to make some change in the organization and here's how we're going to roll it out. And they'll say, yes, I'm on board. I'm going to do that thing. And then come out of the meeting and not do it. This is another uh, circumstance where that wouldn't be able to fly because everybody would, would have that recorded information that said, oh, you agreed this is what you agreed to. We're not doing that thing. Why is that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, a couple of things that I find interesting about this. Um, so one is uh, to what degree does distrust play in the need for transparency? Uh, so here, and I'm going to say for organizational transparency. Uh, so I'm going to separate that out from when he talks just about radical transparency about, you know, you being open with other people about, what you think about them or about a situation. That's one thing. But as far as I'm going to say, organizational transparency, where 
people are allowed to be in every meeting or you, know, you can have a video recording of the meeting, right? If we could trust other people, if we trust, could trust they had good intentions, then it seems like the recording, that kind of transparency wouldn't be as necessary. Now, but not necessarily. I, I, could, I could see you know, there might be some other benefits of the transparency in that, well, if I don't know what was decided in a meeting, I might not be able to give as good, as good a feedback, right? I might, if I listen to a meeting and I hear the reasons they give for their decision, I might be able to come back and say, hey, you know, I hear, heard what you all said. I heard why you made your decision. Let me give you some other considerations that might change your opinion. So you may want transparency just for the purpose of getting better decisions. Certainly, Ray talks about that a lot. Um, so transparent, organizational transparency may not be a factor just of mistrust. I wonder, I wonder, Micah, if it's, if it sort of even alleviates the need for there to be trust, not like I shouldn't trust, but that I no longer have to worry about trusting what you tell me when you come out of a meeting, because, um, you know, it's like, well, if, why would Micah not tell me what is said because what was said or how it was said, because I could just go listen to the recording or why would I even ask you or inquire to you or listen to what you have to say about it when I could just go listen to or watch a recorded instance of that meeting myself and get the same information. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I wonder, does that, does that just like take the worry of mistrust sort of off of the table and then just allow us to be like extremely trusting or do we just like stop worrying even at that level about right. trust? Yeah. You might have say, is it really even trusting at all anymore, right? Like you said, because if everything is out in the open, is trust even a thing, right? Because there's nothing that's concealed that you have to say, well, I'm going to just trust that they've told me the truth. There's So one question might be, is there a loss of some kind of value? Hmm. Uh, is there some kind of loss of value in relationships, right, if we take trust out of it? Um, and that kind of leads me to the kind of the other thought I had about um, – the transparency and in particular his um, allowing for exceptions. So my question is what was the justification for the exceptions? Um, Given that right much of idea meritocracy and radical transparency is the goal of success. Are these exceptions for that purpose? Does he think we're going to improve our success by not recording these particular meetings, um, you know, personal health issues or um, topics, uh, scenarios, or proprietary information. It seems like in the case of proprietary information, the idea is, yeah, we want to preserve the success or promote the success of the company. If this gets out, that would be really bad. Right. Um, but the private issues or personal issues, does he think that ultimately that's still going to make the company more successful by having these exceptions or is there some other good, some other value that he's wanting to promote or retain uh, perhaps at the cost of greater success? So I just want to curious if he sees that as a, you know, in conflict in values. That, in that sounds case. like a, a point to ponder. Yeah. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. 
We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's Principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's Principles. And now back to the show. And I wonder too, and I think, Micah, that probably as a as an organization would do this sort of a thing, that you have to be very uh, explicit uh, about what are the things that are are going to be private in in this in this world of radical transparency, so that there's a very clear delineation between this is a thing that should be private versus this falls into the category of everything that we make transparent. Uh, so that there can't be any sort of, um, what would you call it? Like um, playing game, gamifying, gamifying this in a way where it's like, yeah, this is supposed to be transparent to everyone, but we're going to say it needs to be private because, you know, so you you've probably have to be very explicit with, with uh, drawing those boundaries. Right. Of course, then you still have to trust that that's, you know, Someone's not making up the excuse yeah. for the, you know, what the real reason was for it being private, right? Sure. They could say, well, we've got to discuss a health issue and it wasn't a health issue at all. There is that. Okay. Yeah. So there, there's trust that there's, <laughs> we, we, here comes trust again. So yeah. the trust is back on the <laughs> table. Okay. So let's go on to maybe talk a little bit about the psychometric testing. And I'm sure as a, as a guy from the philosophy world, you, you have, a lot of things to at least say about uh, psychometric testing. I would say that I first became introduced to this probably 10, 10 years ago or so when I, when I, for the first time, took the Myers-Briggs personality assessment, which is the thing that in the book Dalio talks about is his, also his introduction to psychometric testing. And so you want to uh, tell us a little bit about Myers-Briggs for those that maybe. Uh, haven't ever taken the assessment or are not familiar with it, Micah? Yeah. Uh, so, so one, uh, Myers-Briggs, the psychometric testing is more in the realm of psychology as opposed to, right, my background is philosophy. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and I'm not confusing them. I'm just saying that there's, that you know, that's probably interesting still as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, as a philosopher concerned with truth, right, there's also the question about how the mind works and how we kind of get at the truth, uh, with our brains. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I was introduced to Myers-Briggs, uh, my freshman year in college and I loved it. I ate it up. Um, I even got the book, please understand me too. I think it was what it was. And you know, I read, I think pretty much every page, you know, about just all of the different personalities. So, uh, I am an INTP. Okay. Um, okay. So I, so there's four, Kind of, yeah, each person gets four letters. Uh, the first, you are either an I or an E. You're either an introvert or an extrovert. Uh, second, you are either an N or an S. So intuitive or sensing. I still have a struggle with completely understanding that distinction. Uh, 
third is a thinker or feeler. And then P is uh, perceiving and J or, or J P or J perceiving or judgmental. It's kind of like, you know, do you like to look at all the options or do you like to make decisions quickly? Yeah. I'm definitely a P. Um, so you're introverted, you're um, intuitive. intuitive thinking and, and perceiving. Yes. So I'm slightly extroverted, intuitive. I could see that. Thinking and judgmental. The only two things. I'm definitely the judgmental. I absolutely. <laughs> you damn right. The, the only two things that have, and I've taken this test multiple times. Maybe you have as well. The only two, the only things that have ever changed for me, I, I'm close I and E. So I'm like in the middle there. So it goes a little bit back and forth. And the same thing with the, uh, the J and the T. I go back, uh, J and the P, sorry, the J and the P, I go a little bit back and forth between those two, but the N and the T are like solid. They don't move. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, the very first time I took, I was an ISTP and, um, ever since then I've always been an INTP. What do you, what do you think it means that, uh, that you can have different results when you, when you take the sort of a psychometric test? Right. Does Um, it mean that they're non-deterministic? Yeah, I don't know. So there is, you know, there definitely are some criticisms of Myers Briggs, um, which I didn't realize, real, really realize until the last maybe couple of years. Um, there's an article out I read recently, just kind of as a preparation for this podcast. I'll just admit that um, by Adam Grant. Uh, I've listened to a few podcasts of his. He's pretty interesting. He's an organizational psychologist, so he's concerned with like how people interact at work and how to improve those interactions. Um, and he has an article called Goodbye to MBTI, Myers-Briggs Testing Something, uh, the, pat, the fad that won't die. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he talks about one of the problems with Myers-Briggs um, is that it's unreliable. He says there's a 50% chance that your type will be different if you take it five weeks later. Yeah. Um, and then another thing he talks about, and we'll raise this because we'll come to it later, but he says it also seems to be invalid in that it doesn't predict outcomes that matter. And we'll see Ray kind of runs into some problems related to this. Um, but, um, you know, I, it, I think there's definitely much to be gained by the personality types, at the very least, just to recognize the various kind of personality types that can be out there, even if people aren't, you know, really fixed, you know, you have just one personality type and that's what you'll always be. Um, even if people can fluctuate and sort of thing, just to see the different ways in which people interact with their environment, the different ways they process things. You realize, you know, when someone else is doing something in a way that you would never think about it, it's not because they're trying to necessarily be lazy or, you know, they're not necessarily dumb. It's just, they perceive the world in a little bit different way than you do. Um, and I think it maybe creates a little bit more humility in you that, okay, some people just aren't like me. I've heard some people say of the Myers-Briggs personality assessment that it's, it's nothing more than uh, fancy astrology. Like you're a Gemini, you're an Aries and reading your uh, reading about your astrological sign, which I don't agree with at all. I think that there's much more to it than that. Uh, and then there are people that are very steadfast and, and very much behind it as it is, you know, to the point where it's, 
it's a fun, it becomes a fundamental thing in their life where they have this realization that they, they are embodied or represented by those initials that they, you, you get from the test. And then that really truly like motivates and, and guides everything that they do. I think most people probably fall somewhere in that inside of that spectrum where they feel like when they, after they've taken the test, they have that feeling like, Hey, this talks to me in a certain way. And it, it, if nothing else tells me something about myself that I've learned that I can learn from and use as data about myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple of things. So one, um, when I took the test, I read up about, you know, when I was in college and one of the things, so when I was in college for my undergraduate, actually I studied to be a pastor. And one of the things that, uh, the test said was that INTPs typically don't like to lead people, right? You know, be administrators over people and telling them what to do. And I was like, well, you know, pastors typically are doing that kind of yeah. thing, right? It's very administrative roles uh, in a lot of ways. And uh, I talked with my professor about you it. You are said, the shepherd of a flock, are you not? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, I'm not so sure this is going to be, you know, if this, if this is right, uh, this may not be a good career for me. And uh, look where I'm not. <laughs> right. I'm not a pastor. So, um, but just did that, interesting. Do you think that did that fundamentally change your mind at that point? Was that like a revolutionary or evolutionary moment for you? Um, I think really what it did is it validated some thoughts I had had. You know, I kind of knew I didn't really enjoy leading people, um, but it didn't change my projection at that point. You know, I still was pursuing it, but. I, it also allowed it to be in the back of my mind that, okay, maybe something else will be out there that would be a better fit for me. You, you fell into that camp of it made sense to you based on what you knew about yourself, but you also maybe learned some additional things about what that meant for you. Right. That's which, interesting. Yeah. Which is actually kind of one kind of funny thing to me about the test, right? So if you take the Myers-Briggs test, it asks you questions about yourself. You tell it, right? You write down the answers and then they tell you based on what you told them, what you are. It's like, okay, I just told you what I am. You're just repeating it. They're really just kind of categorizing it is the way I think about it. As long as you're being, you're answering honestly. And that's what I've always tried really hard to do is just sort of give reactionary answers to the questions rather than trying to think about them and think about, well, what does the test want me to say? You know, Mm -hmm. what does somebody else want me to be or or who are other people expecting me to be and that sort of thing? Or who do I want to be, right? I don't want to be like that. I'm not going to answer that way. I need to be a pastor. Therefore, I need to be an E. So I need to (laughs) E all of these questions somehow. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so that was one thing. Now, the other thing is, uh, so Adam Grant, the professor who has this article about the problem with Myers-Briggs, he doesn't say get rid of it entirely, uh, but he points out there's a couple other, um, I don't know what you want to call them, uh, I guess personality frameworks, if you will, sure. that incorporate much of Myers-Briggs, but they add on a couple other things that make up for deficiencies in Myers-Briggs. So there's one that's called the Big Five, and then there's another one that's called Hexaco. Big Five adds in a con- uh the topic of emotional stability versus reactivity. Mm. And then Hexaco adds in honesty and humility. Anyways, you know, you know I didn't want to misrepresent Grant's position here, right? He's not saying get rid of Myers-Briggs or personality types in general, but there's better testing that can be done. And there's, I think, for folks that are listening, if they haven't done this test, there are some online resources that you can find where you can, you can take the test. 
Some of them are even free, though I think the ones that are extensive and most reliable are paid for. So if you're interested, you can go out there and find resources to take and and find out what your MBTI personality assessment says about you. Right. And I think so one of the interesting thing is, um, so kind of transitioning to this talk about baseball cards, but, uh, so Ray, um, one of the things he found was even though he was having his managers take these Myers-Briggs tests, he still wasn't getting the outcomes that he would expect out of them. Um, and I think this actually speaks to the invalid critique of Myers-Briggs and that it, um, right. The invalid critique is that, um, it doesn't predict outcomes that matter. And he was thinking that by looking at their Myers-Briggs type, he would be able to fit uh, managers into the correct roles. And he wasn't getting the outcomes that he expected. And so then he came up with this idea of baseball cards. And the idea is you could list people's stats and talk about what is it that they're good at? What's their, what are they bad at? So you might say like just a couple examples, like degree of creativity uh, their ability to discern the big picture, right? Some people are really fine grained. They're kind of trees people. And then some people are forest people, right? And um, uh, yeah, they details oriented, that sort of thing. And so then you could rate people on these various traits and this would be public. And the idea is you could better position people for success because you knew what they were actually good at. Maybe, and, and also maybe uh, as you're interacting with people, understanding how best to interact with someone or, or how best to, um, to uh, work with them, interact and work with them as you're, as you're going through that journey of learning about someone and, and starting to have a relationship with them, a working relationship with them, that these, these traits tell you something and and help you be aware of how is the best way for John and Micah to, to work together or for Micah and Sally to work together, et cetera. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really could help you play to your strengths as opposed to feeling like you have to do everything well. Right. So to go with the baseball analogy, right. Someone who's kind of a skinny baseball player and feels like he needs to hit home runs because those produce the most, you know, those produce the most runs. Um, but if they realize, no, I'm not a home run hitter. You know, I just hit singles and doubles, and that's what I do. They can feel comfortable with, okay, I'm going to stay within my strengths and try and do that best instead of you know, striking out a lot, trying to hit, hit, hit home runs even when I can't. So using that, since that's actually the title of what it's called, the baseball card, extending that analogy into the, into the world of sports and also into the world of business, um, I think people would have some hesitancy here want to have a baseball card about themselves, uh, even though professional athletes have them all, all the time, obviously. And, and today, in today's world, I mean, there is no like static baseball card. Well, they, they, maybe they still have them for collecting purposes, but you can go out online and find out like, you know, really detailed stats on, on professional athletes today. So to do that for individuals, I would imagine that people would, would be somewhat reserved about oh no somebody's going to find out that i'm not the greatest home run hitter and and are my other stats well represented enough to justify me on the team you know i'm like am i a great defensive player or am i a great support player or that sort of thing and in equating that of course to positions within uh an organization or or, or 
a, a work environment. Mm-hmm. And I think it was concern about, you know, can I trust that other people are going to rate me accurately, right? It'd be that someone doesn't like me. And so they say, this person's not creative at all, even if they really are creative. Um, how can you trust that those scores are going to be generated accurately? That's, that's a great point because it's not just a, a black and white evaluation of I got a hit or I ex- uh, successfully fielded the ball or I got a tackle or I shot the puck into the net. It's something much more um, subjective where it's, oh, did, did Micah speak well in the meeting today or did he, did he really think through what he was proposing as his idea? Right. So it's other people giving you scores and yeah. evaluations like gymnastics, maybe. Right. Yeah. Well, and as a former professor, you know, we used to have student evaluations. At the end of the year, you would get very conflicting evaluations, right? They would say, he was very clear. Someone else would say, I didn't understand one thing this guy said, <laughs> right? And so it's like, uh, how do I, how do I take these into account, right? Does it, does it have any value given I'm giving these, getting these conflicting reports? I don't, I don't, I'm not sure how much we've gotten into this yet within the context of the book, but there's this concept of, of believability that plays heavily into this from the perspective of, of doing this at the, in, in the environment that is laid out in, uh, with Bridgewater, with the principles and, the, and all of that. It's like, well, if you, if somebody gave you a student evaluation that said, I didn't understand a word the professor said, uh, but maybe maybe English was not the first language for that individual. Would they really have a belief, a high level of believability to your ability to convey ideas? I think most people would say not as high as a, 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 a native English speaker would, just in general terms. And I'm making a lot of assumptions there, right? But that's right. sort of this context or this the, the idea of believability, right? How much can I believe what someone else is saying about me? One of one of the resources because we're just about out of time, but to share with the listeners, Mike, is that Ray Dalio did a TED talk where he uh, demonstrates how his company uses their uses their culture and the and the capabilities that they've created to to do this rating to give people their baseball cards and to assess people's believability. So one of the things we can do is include that the link to Ray's TED talk in in the in the show notes for this episode so that. Uh, our listeners can go out and, and watch that and learn some more about what all that looks like and what that is. Good idea, John. All right, let's, let's wrap this up with uh, our points to ponder then for our episode, Micah. And I think you had one down here. Why don't you go first with your point to ponder? I did. And it, uh, it doesn't, well, it, it's based off of something we actually didn't touch, but um, you know, Ray talks about um, during this period, there was, you know, signs that a depression was coming in you know, around 2008. And he, he said, um, in reference to that, he said, I was both now both 30 years more knowledgeable and a whole lot less confident, um, you know, hearkening back to the eighties when he predicted, Oh yes, this depression is coming. It's, I know it certain. And so in the two thousands, he said, all right, I see these signs. Looks like it's depression's coming, but he was actually a whole lot less confident. One point to ponder is, of the important things you think you know, so for example, about the meaning of life, what's worth pursuing, what's good in life, and so on, why do you think that you know them? Um, and mm-hmm. a follow-up question might be, what's your basis for thinking that those things are true? Very good. 
Uh, so mine is less of, I guess, a point to ponder and more of like homework to do for people. If you want to think more about yourself and you, you know what your MBTI is, or if you have a desire to find out what it is to do that. And, and then to think about what you, what your baseball card might look like on top of what you got out of your your MBTI assessment and maybe even doing the the things separately. I did this exercise about a year and a half ago where I sat down and I thought about what are all of the things that, what are all of the skills that are important to me in my job and how would I give myself a score like from one to 10 is what is the scale that I used on those skills and, and just thought about them and, and, and reflected on those things to consider, huh? Oh, which of these skills are really important to me? Which one should I consider getting better at? And just sort of using that as a as a way to help me figure out what do I need to do to improve and evolve as as an individual. So a thing for people to consider maybe trying out and doing. Interesting. Thanks. All right. So the next time we'll be back with Chapter 6. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals. This is Dalio's Principles, a philosophical examination. The unofficial podcast companion for Ray Dalio's book, Principles. This podcast will deeply explore the book and principles. The podcast is hosted by Micah Bays and John Sextro. Micah has a PhD in philosophy and has taught numerous college philosophy courses, including The Meaning of Life, Ethics, and Reason and Argument. John shares his perspective from years of experience trying to live out Ray's principles in his life and work. And you can follow us on Twitter. Micah is at Micah Bays, all one word, and I am at John Sextro, all one word. And now, this week's episode. I'm Micah Bays. And I'm John Sextro, and we're back here again with the podcast. This week, we're going to be talking about Chapter 7. The title of Chapter 7 is My Last Year and My Greatest Challenge. It covers the time frame from 2016 through 2017 for Dalio. And just to recap the chapter real quick, it's brief. So as you're reading it, you'll notice, of course, how brief it is. Uh, but uh, at this point, Dalio is moving away from being the CEO. He's trying to start, seems like, separating himself from the day-to-day operations. As such, he realized you know, he's transitioning. He's transitioning the leadership to another CEO. They run into some problems, and we're going to come back and deep dive into that because that's the interesting part we think about the chapter. Uh, work through some of those problems, and uh, then. Dalio decides that he doesn't know as much about running the company as maybe he previously thought. So he goes out and gets some consulting help from a guy named Jim Collins, who is a big time business management um, consultant to help figure out how to go about creating a machine for uh, managing, managing the, the role of CEO and more importantly, what to do if someone in that role fails and what to do about that. Maybe we'll talk a little more about that, Micah. And then ultimately, um, in April 2017, Dalio is able to again step back from the CEO role so that he can, as he says in his, in his words, begin 
moving from the second phase of life to the third phase of life. And in that third phase of life, he says that the third phase is living freely and being free to die, which I don't know. It's a little depressing. We'll come back. We'll come back to that. Micah, that's the brief recap of the chapter. So I think one of the things we wanted to talk more deeply about was uh, what Greg went through in his hero's journey and the implications that I guess that sort of context that, that uh, the, the failures, the, the trouble, um, what all of that means from a philosophical perspective and maybe what we can, what we can learn from those situations. But I think that um, Ray or Dalio feels like he put Greg into a, into a tough spot, had a lot of high expectations for him. And I know, you know, one of his quotes in there is that he regretted that as a mistake because it hurt both of them. It hurt Greg. It hurt, it hurt Ray um, in terms of their relationship and just personally in terms of the, the strife that it put them through. So what do you think are the things maybe that we can start to learn from the failures that occurred in this transition? What's, what is, what's interesting there for us to learn about Micah from a philosophical perspective or from just your general perspective? Yeah. You know, so I think, you know, from a quote unquote philosophical perspective, I think, you know, one of the things I have learned to do, and I certainly don't do this as well as I could or should, but, um, but to evaluate the sources that I'm getting information from, right? So if someone's advocating to me a particular position, you know, I I try to step back and say, okay, so-and-so says such and such is true. Well, there's a question about, is that person believable, right? Do I have a good reason to believe that what they say is true, right? So this is a question about um, the trustworthiness of a source. Um, And one of those questions is going to be, does this person have expertise in that area? Um, And so, right, in this case, you know, and really with this whole book, right, we're interested in Ray... Um, and what he has to say about, you know, radical truth, radical transparency about idea meritocracy, because he's had a lot of success. Um, and so, you know, our hope is, or yeah, our hope or our belief is that he has learned something, right? He has some kind of knowledge, some kind of expertise that we can trust him in what he says to some degree. Now, um, yeah, there's a difference here. So one is sometimes we believe something that someone has said just because they've said it. Right. And so in that case, it's important that they be trustworthy with respect to whatever topic they're addressing. You mean just because of the fact that a person takes the moment in time to communicate something that our default position there is that we we believe that whatever it is they're saying is true. Like the sky is blue and someone else sort of automatically believes that that's a true statement. Um, yeah. So, right. It's without argument. Um, you know, they don't give reason in the case where they don't give reasons as to why you should believe them. If they just say, Hey, such and such is true. Um, well, the question is, are they trustworthy? Can you believe what they say about yeah, that? Right. Um, but now there's another scenario where someone could tell you something is true, but then they give you reasons, right, to believe that it's true. Um, so they say X is true, and they say, well, 
X is true. And the reason you can believe that is not just on my like authority or my saying it, but because reason one, you know, and then reason two, and we can see that from that, it follows that what I've said, you know, is true. Of course, you would also have to have reason to believe that reason one and reason two are true. Uh, but that gets into you know, sure. more difficult stuff. But there's sort of a, there's sort of a general colloquialism that you may have heard before that is in God we trust. Everyone else needs to bring data. <laughs> right. That's the that's that supporting evidence data, whatever you to back up the statements. Right. Yeah. And it gets a little dicey into which scenarios you know can we trust people and which scenarios do we need you know supporting evidence you know to have good reason to believe what they say. Sure. Um, but in this case, right, um, we're interested in what Ray has to say because he's had success. And so presumably we think he's got some kind of expertise in this area about being successful, right? Um, That's interesting because, yes, I think the, I think I would yes and what you said there in that there's maybe we're listening to what he as to say because he's successful. But I think that m- more than that, it's that he's, through some, some amount of trial and error, figured out things that worked better than other things. And the reason he has a platform that allows him to write a book and, and uh, publicize the book and do all the things you have to do to do a book is from that success. But that innately, there, there are trial and errors that he, he learned things um, and and maybe has proven to us to a certain extent, which you might comment on how true they are, but that they they are better ways to try things or do things, right? Um, and yeah, you know, so one of the things is, you know, reading this book. One, you could just take everything at face value that Ray says and so, go, well, he says this, so it's true. Of course, now he's very, um, uh, what's the word? He's non dogmatic in what he says, right? Um, so he doesn't say, just take him at his word for it. As a matter of fact, he says, don't take me at my word for it. Try these things out and figure out what is true for you. Right. That's early in the introduction or first chapter or something. Right. We went over that. Yeah. And so that is the other thing is that, you know, not only can we read the things he claims, but then, you know, if in the book he offers us reasons to believe what he said, then we can evaluate those arguments. Um, uh, and so, and that's certainly what we're setting out to do here, right? In this podcast, we're trying to assess his arguments to some degree. Um, but on the whole, right? Um, I'm just thinking about it from uh, why are we interested in Ray in the first place, right? Because we think he has reasons, right, for his success. We think he has a certain kind of skill, a certain kind of knowledge. And so, um, what's interesting to me with this you know, failure to successfully transition to a new CEO is, you know, you might wonder, well, does that call into question the success that he's had? Does it call into question the methodologies he's put into place? Right. You think about the idea of meritocracy where he's wanting, right. His, his goal is to have the best ideas. You might say rise to the top. And that's what ultimately is um, relied upon in decision-making for the company. And so, right. This was an unsuccessful, at least initially transition to a new CEO. And 
it's not as though this was an unexpected transition, right? Like it wasn't like Ray died and then, you know, someone came in and fill him um, or something like that. They knew this transition was going to happen. They um, planned for it. They carefully thought it out and yet it still failed. Right. So you might think, well, how great is this idea of meritocracy in the first place? So I'm going to be, I'm going to start off a little skeptical here um, with respect to Ray. And then um, I'm going to circle back around to maybe spell some of the skepticism we might have. Um, But some of the reasons we might have to be skeptical about Ray um, and the idea of idea of meritocracy and radical truth and radical transparency. And it's, you might say, importance to success um which which i think includes like the principles themselves and the systematized approach to everything that dalio does and how does that factor into the, the failure right um so uh for certainly what's playing into my head to some degree is um i've read portions of uh, a book by daniel kahneman i think i may have mentioned this book before uh, but I read, I've read a, a portion of it, and um, Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. Uh, he's a so Kahneman is a psychologist, uh, but he won the Nobel Prize for economics, right? Kind of weird. Um, yeah, but it was because he explained how economics doesn't work quite the way econo- ec- economists thought it worked. Um, economists presumed people were ideally rational, roughly. And Kahneman has pointed out a lot of the ways in which our psychology makes mistakes and errors and that those erroneous thoughts affect our economic decision-making. Um, and one of the things that Kahneman looks at uh, is when can we rely on intuitions and one of the things for Kahneman is um, he thinks investments, you know, the stock market isn't something that we can really be experts at. Um, so you can't really have a you know a stockbroker who's an expert in the market. Now, they could be an expert as far as knowing all the terminology of the stock market, right? What bonds are and, you know, those kinds of things, right? Terminology. But as far as the concept of, Beating the market. Yes. Right? Yeah. Kahneman's going to say, you can't really be an expert at that. And we can't go all into that here, but that is playing in my mind. Like he's, so Kahneman's going to say, um, yeah, you'll see people who are successful at the stock market, but that's not because of, not because of their knowledge. Um, most of that is attributable to success, right? They just happened, you might say to be lucky more than others. Um, and so then it starts me, of course, thinking about Ray here, right? They're obviously involved with investments. And so it's this concern of, well, is Ray really successful because of the idea of meritocracy and because of, you know, the algorithms and so on, or is that just all largely chance? And so now we're discussing him, right? Because he's just luckily successful. Um, so that's a concern. Um, and also, you know, I th- just think it's interesting to point out kind of the significance of this failure to Ray, um, earlier in the book, uh, page 79 in the ultimate boon chapter, 
He says, the greatest success you can have as the person in charge is to orchestrate others to do things well without you. Right. So one thing is just to get into the psychology of Ray at this point, as far as understanding the significance to him, presumably, of this failure. You know, that's the ultimate success that one can have or the greatest success. And here it is, you know, he's failed at it, at least initially. Um, so I think, you know, he would see that as a big problem. Um, well, before you move on to the next topic, I wonder if, uh, if he would agree with that or just, I wonder in general about that statement that you made that he would see his, his own failure or a failure as a problem. Uh, because I think that as we've learned from the previous chapters that we've read without any future, without spo- any spoilers or future uh, looking into the book that, you know, the the worst thing you could do is like hide a failure or, or punish someone for a failure. The best thing to do is to, to learn from that failure and uh, use, use what you learn from that failure, adapt that to your model so that your model's better for the future uh, to better predict, better understand how, what success, what, what needs to happen in order to achieve success. Right. So you actually kind of touch on, you know, where I'm going to go as far as why we might, not want to be overly skeptical at yeah. this point. Right. Um, so one, you know, Ray certainly hasn't said he's perfect, right? He hasn't, no. you know, offered perfection and, and said, Hey, you know, every, every decision we make is going to be perfect and there's never going to be any errors. Right. He's very well aware that he's going to make errors. Um, and so for him, right. He does want to make these, um, he wants to write these down. Right. So write down his algorithms, write down his decision-making processes and reasons, so that then he can evaluate them in retrospect and say, hey, well, where did we make the mistake here? I do think it's a very natural thing for people to see someone have a failure and immediately their minds go to, why should I listen to that person, though? Uh, and if you, just, if you just stop there in the evaluation of Dalio and the things that he's done, you probably quickly, pretty quickly get off track because the man has had some pretty, some pretty fantastic failures, both in investing and in and in his management of the business. Uh, this one being an example of failure in the management of the business. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's yeah. what, it's what he's been able to do and how he's been able to recover and improve, improve his models, improve his approach that, um, that make it extraordinary or, or successful. Right. Yeah. And I think what I want to be careful about is, you know, when a person is, is successful, attributing that success to their skills yeah, right? and when yeah. they fail saying, well, you know, those are circumstances beyond their control. Um, so is there a way to not do that with raised success? Is there a way to attribute the success to s- skill, at least to some degree? Um, and, you know, I wouldn't think Ray would say, well, there's no luck involved at all in his success. So one thing uh, that I think would be interesting is, what would Kahneman say about Dalio and the way that Bridgewater works and their investments, you know, their investment strategies, would he see it as any different than other stockbrokers and so on? Um, right. In part, one of Kahneman's things is, you know, people rely on their intuitions too much. And uh, for example, he says, don't ever buy a house or don't ever buy a car without making a list. Right. 
write down what is exactly you're looking for in a house, what exactly is it you're looking for in a car, because otherwise you get into that scenario, right? And you might get really focused on, oh, that car looks so nice, right? But did you think about, does it have all of the features that you're really wanting, right? Because of our psychology, we might um, stop. We might not remember all the things that we really wanted in a car. But if you've got a list, right, and you go and check out the car, then those are things that are visible. They're there. They're, you know, set in stone, you might say. And so then you can know, okay, I need to check this one off. I need to check this, you know, feature off. Um, and they're they're easy to evaluate for the most part, depending on what your list is. But it's like less than thirty thousand dollars. That's an easy thing to evaluate. Check. Okay, twenty eight thousand dollars. Boom. Or has to have air conditioning. Check. Needs to have leather seats. Check. Right. Those are right. sort of true or false things that are, that help you with the evaluation. Right. That are take the emotion, I guess, maybe or the maybe what you call the psychology in this case out of, out it. of it. Right. And so you know we can see that. Certainly Ray does this in a way, right, with his algorithms, right? He's writing down, okay, here's the principles by which we're um, making our investment decisions. And then we can go back to that, you know, after the investment has been made, after we've seen the results, and we can reevaluate it again. So, you know, I'm curious if the way that Ray has done this with the algorithms, if Kahneman would see that as any different, right? Yeah, it's it seems to me that, what he's done, and and I don't think any of the the principles themselves um, I don't, lead us to any any financial stock picking revelations. They they don't deal with that. Right. They deal with the decision making process and how um, how somehow if you listen to what Condiman says about what you were saying, Micah, where there's a certain amount of luck involved, it seems like these principles and the way that they behave. The, the way that the principles uh, motivate people to behave might be somewhat akin to that list that you're that you laid out going to buy a car or make a decision to buy a house, et cetera, where it's almost like, Hey, that's our list of things to say, don't let the hype and, and maybe the adrenaline and the salesman and, you know, other hype sort of things that you've heard impact your psychology let's go back to base elements in Dalio's case. It's his, these principles that they use to get in sync about what's true and what, what they believe and who to believe Mm -hmm. in order to um, make decisions because they have that you, you would think that you would see more and I don't know deep details about, I don't know that anybody does other than Dalio and the people inside of his company, how really successful they are in terms of the trading that they do and, and the financial work that they do, but you, it seems that they're a very successful company. And so they must have had years and years of strings of very good investment decisions. And it would, it would seem to me that that would counter condiments thing of it's luck and that, you know, the, the luck can only last for so long. Right. Well, so one, right. A little bit of pushback and then Great. Uh, I'll retract. But uh, a little <laughs> bit of pushback is, you know, even with like flipping a coin, right? It's a 50-50 chance, heads or tails. Well, if you flip a coin enough, right, you're going to get some segment where, you know, of those flips where it's all heads for like four or five or six. And you might say, oh, wow, look at that, you know. Right. But that's still luck, right? And so you could argue, well, okay, sure, we might see some investment companies that have more success than others, 
but that could still be attributable to success or to attributable to luck. Right. Um, in the same way that flipping a coin, you know, you can s- see certain outcomes. Yeah. Um, I see the logic in that argument. Mm-hmm. And so the question is, of course, how can we truly differentiate quote unquote successful investment companies that have good reasons yeah. and, and successful ones just because of luck. The lucky ones. Right. So what do you think? How, how can we? Well, so uh, one thing just to bring back to Kahneman, you know, Kahneman doesn't say that um, all success or that success is attributable entirely to luck. He says it's talent plus luck. And he does think that the more talent you have, the greater your chance of being able to take advantage of good luck right and so um you know he talks about that with respect to himself and winning the nobel prize you know he's gonna say look there are other people who are doing just as good a work as he was it just so happens that you know he got himself in the right places you know luckily at the right times but nonetheless right if he hadn't developed his skills he couldn't have taken advantage of those good opportunities yeah, you have to do, there's a certain amount of work that an individual has to do to prepare themselves for the right place at the right time. You have to, you have to be there. You have to, you have to be in that space. You have to be doing something, right? So there's all sorts of things you have to do so that when the right place and time happen, you can take advantage of them. Right. And so I think that's where, you know, we can start thinking about Ray again here as far as, okay, maybe he can't determine absolutely whether he's going to be successful. But one question is, are these principles that he has, you know, the concept of radical truth, radical transparency, idea of meritocracy, are those the kinds of things that are, you might say, like talents, right? Are these things that really make you better, make you smarter, make you better able to make decisions? And if so, then yeah, when the right opportunity comes along, you're going to, have more success even though you aren't really in control of whether those opportunities come along, right. Or the degree to which they come along, right. Some of it, right. You do create opportunities for yourself and some of them fall in your lap, that kind of thing. Um, so I think the thing to think about uh, with respect to Ray here and success is if we think that having more truth increases your chance of being successful, then do we think that Ray's principles help us get truth, right? Do they increase our chance that we're going to better understand things? And so if radical truth, you know, having that attitude of being willing to know what the truth is, no matter what you desire it to be, um, do we think that that's something that increases our chance of getting at the truth? Likewise, does radical transparency increase our chance of getting at the truth? If so, then it seems like we have some reason to think that what Ray's up to has some reason to increase our chance at success. Yeah. So um, what do you what do you think? What's your your sort of top down look at it? If you if you have more truth or if you're able to find out more, if you're able to dig deep enough to find the truth in things, which maybe is aided by this uh this availability of the data through the transparency, do you think that that's going to aid you long term and in being more successful or having, or maybe it's having the opportunities to be more successful. 
Yeah, I think on the whole, right? I definitely want to have some caveats here, and you know, of course, <laughs> of course, philosophy, <laughs> absolutely. You know, it's a broader picture, right? Because there's questions about you know, even if some mechanism or process is helpful for getting at the truth, right? For me, at least, right, there might be instances in where getting at the truth would have to be done in an illegitimate means, right? So, for example, um, insider trading, right? Yeah. I could get at the truth better, right? I'm sure. I'm going to know how that company's going to do. And would that make me more successful, you know, as an, if I'm in investments? Yes, right? Presuming I don't get caught. But there's also a question for me of, well, there's other considerations. I think there are other values than just truth. And so it might be that, you know, even if I have the opportunity to do some investment, some insider trading, I might need to say no to gaining that truth for other reasons, right? There are other goods in life that are, that would be, you might say, hindered or destroyed by pursuing truth in that manner. So it's a complicated issue, but yeah. generally speaking, I think the more truth you have, the more likely you are to be successful. We operate the podcast on the value for value model. We are entirely listener supported. If you enjoy the podcast and find value in the information and entertainment you receive, you can donate to the podcast on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash Dalio's principles and click support this podcast. There are even more ways to support the show. You can dazzle all of your friends with information learned on the show and share the show with them on social media. Also, you can review us on iTunes. It'd be awesome if you blog about it or even talked about our podcast on your very own podcast. And you can always direct your friends to our subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash Dalio's principles. And now back to the show. So we sort of went down this line of thinking. You started off down this line of thinking, Micah, by reflecting initially on Dalio and the six and the failure, sorry, the failure that he experienced uh, through the trying to transition to Greg, the new CEO and what that means for the, the evaluation of Dalio and, and his principles and, and what he holds true. Have you, have you sort of come through an arc here in, in terms of your thinking back around to, and where does that take you uh, in terms of uh, evaluating or understanding philosophically what what Dalio has done and what he what that means for his success or his maybe maybe more importantly in our eyes the eyes of the readers as well his believability in the context of the book and the principles themselves i guess i mean i'm inclined to think that what he has to offer is going to be helpful for success but I also have reservations about, well, how do I really know, right, that this is going to be helpful? Um, especially, you know, right, he mentions Jim Collins, or, you know, he consults with Jim Collins, right? Jim Collins wrote the book, Good to Great. Um, I read that here with you know, our company uh, as part of a book club that we actually had. And there there are people who have pointed out concerns about Collins's book um, in that, you know, of the 11 companies, nine of them are still successful, but two are failures. Um, I think it was, uh, circuit well, city was one of them. Yeah. Circuit city. And then was the other, 
Well, I don't want to say it because I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, someone else pointed out, I think I've read this on Wikipedia, but that's largely a tr- truthful source. <laughs> um, if you had invested in those 11 companies uh, at the time the book came out, you would actually be underperforming the S&P 500, right? So there's a concern about whether those kinds of business books, you know, how much you can really rely on them to get you um, success in your business. Um, and so that at the very least puts a amount of doubt in my head, right? As I'm reading this, I think I'm better off, right? I'm more comfortable. You might say thinking about, okay, insofar as I think truth is a good thing, right? In being successful, I want to evaluate raise principles and raise, you know, yeah, raise principles along those lines. Do I think what he's offering is a better way at getting that truth than I'm currently, you know, pursuing. So just on, on the same topic with the Ray sharing the, the failure in the book and what does that mean? I'll share that in the, in my initial reading of the book, when I read, when I came across this, it really caused me to take pause and think very hard about, do I want to keep reading this? I did. Obviously, I'm here. We have the podcast. <laughs> you are here. I can uh, I can vouch for that. You are here, John. Thank you. Uh, confirmation of that. And and I came to realize that what I where I where I landed with this in my thinking was that there's no reason why Dalio needed to share that share recount the the story of this failure uh, with the transition of the CEO. Maybe. Very few people even in the world know this information. It wouldn't be like somebody would go back to him and say, oh, you had this failure. Don't forget you had that failure. Um, I, I think that the intention behind sharing it, even though in some people's minds it might damage their level of credibility in him or his believability, is to demonstrate that he holds himself to the same level of standards, that he's not perfect. But I don't think he's ever tried to say that he was perfect. And I think on a number of occasions, as I mentioned throughout the early chapters of this book that we've read thus far, he shares failures and, and the failures are just as important to the success as are, as it is when you get it right the first time. And then maybe, maybe that's sort of the luck side of it, getting it right the first time, documenting what you did in order to get it right the first time. But then also being able to really, deeply evaluate when things went poorly and be able to step back and say, man, that just was a complete screw up and I just couldn't do anything right. And I thought I knew things and, um, I have a, I have a multi-million billion, whatever dollar business. And yet here I am now, um, sort of alone and feeling like I don't know what I'm doing. And that's a really humbling probably a very humbling moment for a person and to step back and say, I got I have to go get a consultant, Jim Collins to come in and, and help me figure this out again, humbling. How many people could, could um, humble themselves in that way to say, I'm the, I'm the owner, the creator, the entrepreneur of this company. Yet I realize that I have some shortcom- shortcomings. I need to compensate for those. And I need to go get some help. And so I think that it's very, um, it's very instructive to who Dalio is and 
that he is able to really, uh, you know, be self-aware of where his shortcomings are. Maybe not always, but to realize at some point and then try to take action and bring in really smart expert people to get their help. Of course, a guy like Jim Collins, also not perfect. The, the company's in, in good to great that didn't end up being successful. I think Collins would caveat with what we know today with those companies saying that, well, it, the great didn't necessarily mean that they were great investments, <laughs> that um, the companies also were evaluated at a point in time and a company like Circuit City, when they were evaluated, they may have been great and then made a series of terrible decisions that, that um, made them less than great and ultimately out of business. Uh, but I, I just, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the thinking and the thought process and, and the evaluation that I went through in reading this chapter to figure out how much, to, how much credibility and believability would I continue to invest in Dalio in the book? Right. Yeah. And I think too, you know, um, I think Ray mentioned that as a result of the difficult transition, uh, there's, there are a lot of rumors around about, you know, what the cause was. And apparently like, you know, people were saying, I guess like it was a big blowout between he and Greg. Um, and you know, he could have just totally just ignored that or just, you know, put on a very, you know, he could have come out and just blatantly lie and say, Oh no, nothing's wrong. We're perfectly fine. Right. You know, he could have made some public statement like that, but yeah, as you mentioned, yeah, he, fessed up to, Hey, yeah, things haven't gone well. Now he did reject a lot of the rumors that were going around about the nature of the disagreement, nature of the problem. Um, but nonetheless, he did admit, yeah, this wasn't a, was not a successful transition. And then he showed the resiliency and the ability to bounce back in this chapter by getting that help and ultimately, uh, reenacting the transition and being able to step away so in the chapter, we get to see that full arc uh, from Dalio's perspective of trying to do something very, very important, very, very hard, failing, living through the failure, uh, the repercussions that the failure had on he and the other individual, Greg, and then what, they, what he did to adapt and compensate for that, improve, and then ultimately be successful, which, um, again, I think it's, very, it's a very interesting arc to see Dalio recount how he navigated through that. Yeah. Um, one thing I, to go back to your question about, you know, how I kind of view Ray and, you know, in light of this, uh, you know, failure and, you know, my attitude, you might say toward the book and, you know, do I believe it or something like that? One thing that's interesting. Well, one thing to point out is, you know, even in right, the sciences, there are failures, right. In the sense of at one time we'll say, Hey, science says, for a silly example, Pluto was a planet, right? Now we say, no, Pluto's not a planet. He's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know the uh, discoverer of Pluto? No. Clyde Tombaugh from Kansas. Oh. That's the only reason I know that. And, You're a big Kansas guy. Well, yes. And that and that my uh, um, earth science teacher, Mr. Brown, uh, was very proud of the fact that we had a Kansan who discovered Pluto. So he was very disheartened when um, they took it away again. Exactly. Yeah. I see. It's just some rock out there. Seems like it's gone back and forth some. Yeah. Um, But, you know, even, you know, I mean, that's one kind of trivial example, but, you know, other like sciences, you know, 
think about all the reports about, hey, if you drink coffee, it's bad for your health. If you right. drink coffee, it's good for your health, right? And there's you know a really big controversy um, that's growing, I guess, about you know what do we need to do to have scientific studies that are um, reliable, that are repeatable, and so on. Um, so one thing, right? One way to approach this is to say. Oh look, there was a mistake made in the sciences, so now I'm going to just say forget science entirely. Right? That seems like a bad way to go forward. Great, throw science out. <laughs> yeah. No more science. Yeah. Just because there's failures doesn't mean you want to just give up on it, right? You kind of have to work with what you've got. And so I guess in some ways that because otherwise you know, I do probably have this tendency of if I'm skeptical about something like, well, how do I know? Yeah. I can have this tendency to want to just not you know, make any decisions based on it. Um but the reality is if I applied that to everything, I couldn't make any decisions about anything at all, right? Um, so it's kind of, uh, hey, let's go with the way things seem best. I think as a society, we become so focused, Micah, on confirming someone's belief. And even in a scientific, in a scientific perspective, to say, I'm, I'm running an experiment and I, I want to find out if this chemical, this medication is going to have you know, positive outcomes on someone's health. We're so focused on like confirming that and wanting it to be true that we forget that half of science, at the very least half of science, is also figuring out what's not true, that it doesn't work. You know, when when they invented, who was it that invented the light bulb? Edison. Edison. Right? You know, they, somebody said to him, you, you, it took you like a thousand tries to invent the light bulb. And he's like, well, I found out 999 ways not to do it. But people forget the, how important it is to figure out what doesn't work as well as what does work. And if we, from a scientific perspective in our society, could, could put an equal amount of importance on those things, I think we'd stop forcing these scientific communities into the, these rash decisions and always trying to just assume or force forcing the the belief and the assumption that they should get the right answer the first time all of the time that's a incredibly high bar that i don't think anyone can ever live up to right getting it yeah. right the first time all the time not possible right well i i had i think we should talk a little bit about some points to ponder and mike i'm not sure if you have one but i'll, I'll go ahead and get started because i have one and it's actually something that's been rattling around in my brain for a while. And this, as we are again talking about this chapter, um, really crystallized it in my mind, especially when you talked, Micah, about Kahneman and the, the amount of luck that's involved with being successful. And then again, this thing about that we just here briefly discussed with, with um, expecting that someone can get something right the first time all of the time. And I think about... Uh, people that are sort of, I'll call them dot-com millionaires. But I'm, what I'm really thinking of nowadays anyway is like app developer success stories where a, a person has has created a new hot app and it goes crazy successful. You know, maybe it's like, it's like Instagram or it's the next Instagram or it's WhatsApp or it's, I don't know, you know, you pick your favorite, your favorite app and, and, and consider that. So I think there's a couple of things to think about with the people that have had success in those areas. One is how many times did they fail? Twitter, when, when Twitter started, the original idea that the people that created Twitter built 
with some sort of a podcasting platform. And uh, soon in the development, they're like, this is never going to work. And they pivoted it and they created Twitter. So they had a success there, but they had a failure. How much believability could you put into someone who's built an app and they got it right the first time and that's their big success. Now they're a multimillionaire. They're uh, you know a talking head that everybody listens to. I would be less inclined to believe that person than an app developer that has done 20 different apps and 19 of them have failed. And finally, number 20 is, is successful and not even like wildly successful. But I think that person would know so much more about what it takes to do a successful app than the person that got it right the first time out of the gate and had no experience in uh, with failure. So my, I guess my point for people to ponder there is in your life, look around for people that have maybe had more failures and leverage those people to help us learn what not to do as much as what to do. Well, that's this chapter of the book, chapter seven, and we'll be back next time with chapter eight. Thanks, John. And uh, sorry, people, I don't have a point to ponder for you. That's all right. We'll expect two next time. Will do. Thanks for listening. Let's keep the conversation going on our subreddit, Dalio's Principles at reddit.com. The subreddit is Dalio's Principles, all one word. Join us to interact with a community of like-minded individuals.